This morning's scripture reading is from Galatians 3. I want to turn your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 973. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Well, if any of you are like me, you don't know how to fix many things. I didn't particularly grow up in a home, even though I grew up in a home of a man who was a union drywaller and superintendent carpenter. I am um, surprisingly did not inherit those skills and to this day struggle to know how to fix things. So it's helpful when a website becomes available like eHow. Ehow.com, E-H-O-W.com, tells you how to do just about anything, whether it's correct or not, we don't know, but I stumbled across this one, How to Break a Witchcraft Spell. Would you like to hear it? Number one, they have instructions. Find a spot where nothing grows, that might be tough, and dig a hole 12 inches deep and 12 inches wide. Fill the hole with charcoal. Number two, find a piece of land with green grass near a tree. Make seven circles in the white candle with a knife, each one inch apart. Place the white candle in the green grass. Number three, using the other knife, make seven circles in the black candle. On the bottom of the black candle, etch the name and birth date of the person you believe curse you. Number four, light the white candle and then light the black candle. As the candles burn, repeat a phrase until both candles have burned down to the first circle. I tell you what the phrase is, but it's, I think it's Latin, so I can't remember. Put out the candles. Etch the name and birth date of the person who hexed you on the tarot card. Knight card for a male, queen card for a female. Bury the card in the black candle and charcoal. Number five, bury the white candle next to the tree. This method will remove the curse within seven days. Tips and warnings. Use caution when lighting or extinguishing the candles. Use caution when drawing the circles with the knives. 
Well, as strange as that may sound, that's exactly what Paul is trying to do in this passage this morning. He's trying to break a spell. Now, not the kind of spell that E. Howe talks about or that that article talks about, but rather a spell of legalism, a spell of seeking to try to earn your forgiveness from God by what you do for God. That had slowly crept in to the church at Galatia. And I would like to reread this passage uh, through a different translation, not so much to be novel, but to get a to get another perspective on it. So Bobby's reading was very helpful. But I'd like to read to you Galatians 3, 1 to 5, once again, in the message translation, which is a paraphrase. But it picks up the intensity of what Paul is saying here. And maybe it'll give us a fresh perspective on what he's saying. You crazy Galatians, did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened, for it's obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think that they could complete their own efforts that which God has begun. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? Did you go through this whole painful learning process for nothing? Is it not, it's not yet a total loss, but certainly it will be if you keep this up. Just answer this question for me. Does the God who lavishly provides you with his own presence, his Holy Spirit, working things in your lives you could never do for yourselves, does he do these things because of your strenuous moral striving or because you trust him to do them in you? I think that's a helpful perspective. Because what's going on is Paul is trying to, as the title of my sermon, he's trying to restore these spellbound fools to gospel sanity. He's trying to bring them back to the gospel. Now, we know from the first two chapters of Galatians, as we've studied, that Paul has one goal in mind in those two chapters, and that is to defend his gospel and his right to preach it. He said it's not from man. It didn't come from anybody. He received it directly from Jesus Christ. He doesn't stand on any person's authority but Jesus's. And he proves that by showing his relationship with the apostles and his previous journeys to them and all that. And then he even rebukes an apostle in chapter 2 to show that his gospel is actually superior to the behavior of even the apostles. Because his gospel, again, came from Jesus Christ directly. And then he explains what the essence of his gospel is, starting in verse 15 of chapter 2. That we are justified, that is made right with God, not on the basis of what we do or have done for God or will do for God, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for us and through faith in him alone. And then after thinking about that, and Jonathan giving several reasons why trying to pursue that by what you do for God, trying to achieve forgiveness from God by what you do for God, is just completely sinful and worthless and, in fact, blasphemous. You remember the last verse of chapter 2 ends with this phrase. If you can achieve forgiveness, let me just quote the verse, I do not nullify the grace of God, For if righteousness, that is, if you could get right with God, if you could fulfill all that the law requires through obedience to the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And when Paul thinks of that, when Paul thinks about the death of Jesus being in vain, there's a holy rant that raises up within him. He thinks about Jesus dying and shedding his blood 
and bearing the wrath of God and fulfilling all the law's requirements. And he thinks of these Galatians trying to supplant that work, get rid of that work, and achieve that work by what they do. He looks at Christ dying there for no purpose, and he says, you foolish Galatians. How in the world could you do something like this? So he proceeds in the first five verses of chapter 3 to break this spell. Oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Who has cast this spell on you? He's using a metaphor. Who is, who is, who, who is, what has happened to you that has made you so not care about Jesus anymore and so not feel the need for his atonement? What has come in, what has infected your thinking that you now think that having begun by trust in Jesus, that you're going to somehow advance or mature in any other way? And he gives them four truths about the gospel, actually three truths, three truths about the gospel uh, to, to fix them and to try to get them out of the grip of this spell that they are under. And th- those three statements are going to form the substance of my outline this morning. So he, he makes three statements about the gospel to try to get them out of this spellbound state of thinking that they don't need Jesus Christ. Number one. He reminds them that we become Christians by believing the gospel. We become Christians by believing the gospel. Verses 1 and 2. Oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit? That is, did you begin your Christian life? By works of the law, that is, by doing what the law demands of you, what God said you should do, or by hearing with faith. Now, how did the Galatians receive the Spirit and begin the Christian life? There are two possibilities, Paul lays out, by obeying the law's demands or by believing a message. And Paul is really clear, isn't he? He says, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed before you as crucified, and I presented a message about him, and that is how you began the Christian life. So four steps here. First, a message was communicated about Jesus. Jesus Christ as crucified. That's Paul's message. That's Paul's message wherever he goes, is to present Jesus Christ, who he is, as a crucified Savior, dying on a cross. Notice that the essence of this message is not how to live. He didn't show up and say, Galatians, this is how you're supposed to live. Rather, he shows up and shares a message, this is how Jesus lived. So it's a message not what they're to do, but what Jesus has done. The gospel is an announcement of historical events before it is an instruction about how to live. It is an announcement of what Jesus has done in history. It is the proclamation of what has been done for us before it is a direction of what we must do. John Stott says it like this, the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. It's not an invitation for us to do anything, but a declaration of what God has done. Not a demand, but an offer. The law says do, but the gospel says done. The law requires human achievement, but the gospel requires faith in Christ's achievement. 
The law makes demands and tells us to obey. The gospel makes us promises and tells us to believe. That's the, there's a world of difference between those two things. And the message that Paul communicated to the Galatians was this message of what Christ has done, his achievement, and he called upon them to believe in that message. Number two, not only was the message communicated, but the message gripped the heart. The message gripped the heart. That's what, mean, that's what it means by this phrase, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul's not referring to any physical sighting of Jesus. Paul didn't show up and present a vision of Jesus that the Galatians could see. Because notice what he says, did you receive the Spirit by works of law or, verse 2, by hearing with faith? It was a message that they heard. Then why does he say that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed? Well, it didn't mean that the crucifixion was physically portrayed in Paul's preaching, but that the significance of Christ's cross was so vividly communicated to them as if it were placarded on a billboard right in front of them. Paul's communication of the gospel described Jesus, described his sufferings, described what those sufferings were all about, described what was going on in his life. And the Galatians heard that, and it gripped them from the inside. Phil Riken writes, What the Galatians had seen was a graphic display of the crucified Christ. Not a physical display, but it was though Jesus Christ had been presented before them on a giant billboard. That's the idea of public portrayal. So the message was communicated. The message gripped the heart. Thirdly, when they heard this message, they responded in a certain way. They didn't respond by saying, okay, now I've got to get to work for God. Let me start doing things for God. They responded by transferring their trust from their works and what they had done to Christ and his works and what he had done. They transferred their trust from their achievements and obedience to his achievements and obedience. In other words, it was by hearing with faith, not by works of the law, that they responded to the gospel. To believe the gospel is not merely to assent to assertions about Christ. He died, he rose. It's to, it's to stop seeking to attain salvation by observing the law. That's what it means to receive the gospel. It's to quit your self-salvation project. It's to quit trying and start trusting. Before we become Christians, we trust in various projects of self-improvement and personal effort to make us complete. But to believe in Christ is to enact a revolution in what we trust. No longer trusting in ourselves, no longer trusting in what we've done or haven't done, but trusting completely in Jesus and what he's done. So a message was communicated, it gripped the heart, and they transferred their trust to Jesus. And as a result of that, number four, they received the Holy Spirit and were regenerated from the inside out. The result of believing this vivid portrayal of the gospel of Christ was that the Galatians received the Spirit. They received the Spirit by believing. Now, what's the importance of receiving the Spirit? Why is Paul saying you received the Spirit? He's referring to the Holy Spirit, and it's clear from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 2.12, Romans 8.9, that unless a person has the Holy Spirit dwelling within their life, they're not a Christian. But Paul is arguing that they had received the Spirit by hearing this message and believing it long before the Judaizers came along and say, said, you guys aren't Christian because you don't observe the law of Moses and you don't do these ceremonial things like circumcision. These false teachers that come in and said, you're almost Christians. 
Galatians. You're almost Christians. You believe in Jesus. Good. But you've got to add some things. And Paul said, now listen, Galatians, when did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit when the Judaizers showed up? Or did you receive the Spirit when I showed up, preached the gospel to you, you believed it? Which one? They said, oh, that. Then when do you think you became a Christian? Does it take more or just faith in the message of Christ? They would have gotten his point. It was not because the Galatians did anything required by the law that they received the Spirit. In fact, they did not keep the law and its requirements, for they were unclean, uncircumcised Gentiles in the first place. They received the Spirit when they heard the gospel preached and placed their trust in the gospel. Believing, not doing, was the pathway to receiving the Spirit. And since the Galatians have the Spirit, they're clearly Christians and belong to the people of God, and hence circumcision and observing the ceremonial law is not required to belong to the people of God. That's Paul's point. Now let me apply this. We've seen that we believe we become Christians by believing a message, by believing a message that's communicated about Jesus Christ and his work. It grips the heart. It causes us to transfer our trust from ourselves to Jesus. And as a result of that, we receive the Holy Spirit and become new creations, totally different people from the inside out. Has that happened to you? Is that your experience? Is that how you began your Christian life? Because if you didn't, you didn't begin the Christian life. This is how every Christian begins the Christian life. Every single Christian begins their Christian life like this. Have you had this experience? Have you heard a message about Jesus? And is it the message that the Bible communicates about Jesus, not just the message you think is about Jesus? But it's the true Jesus from the true Bible. It is it's centered on the fact that he died. If you are currently trusting or thinking about a Jesus who didn't die a bloody death, you don't have the biblical Jesus. You are not trusting in the biblical Jesus. There's, there's a, a, a view out there in the world today that is trying to undermine this part of Jesus' life. He didn't have to die. Or if he did die, it was just an example. We shouldn't talk about that bloody, gruesome stuff so much. Paul talked about that bloody, gruesome stuff all the time. And the reason why he talked about it is because we can't be saved without hearing about it. So this bloody, gruesome stuff about Jesus and his dying on the cross is essential. That's the message. That is the message, according to Paul here. But not only did you hear that message, have you heard that message, but did it grip you? Grip your heart. Grip your life, not just entered your brain, think, well, that's a crazy religious idea, but actually gripped you. This is true. And then did it result in something? Did it result in a trust transfer? Did it result in, he's all my hope, he's all my joy, he's everything, and you left all your damnable good works behind? And as a result of that, were you transformed? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? That's what happened. That's what happens to every Christian. Tim Keller writes, A Christian is not just someone who knows about Jesus, but one who has seen him on the cross. Our hearts are moved when we see not just that he died in general, but that he died for us. When that knowledge affects us and becomes life-changing, we are Christians. See, we live 
right now in a community in a south area with lots of people going to church and lots, some less now than before, but people going to a religious event or having a religious experience or whatever. But when you ask them, has the knowledge of Jesus really affected you? Does it affect your life? Maybe they wouldn't have any clue about what you're talking about. Keller concludes, we see the meaning of his work for us. We can only be saved by a heart-moving, rationally clear presentation of Christ's work on our behalf. Get both of those. It has to be rational. It has to be clear. People don't get saved by a heart-moving encounter with Jesus. Ooh, I felt his presence. That doesn't save anybody. There has to be a rationally clear presentation of who Jesus is, and then it has to affect you. It has to move your heart, grip your heart. It's not either or, it's both. So have you had both? Are you right now, as you live with Jesus, experiencing both, where his gospel is more and more gripping you and gripping your heart and life? If it hasn't, if you have not had that, this morning you have heard that message. Right now, as I'm preaching, this morning you have perhaps had your heart gripped. Now all you have to do is transfer your trust. You can do it right there in your pew. You can transfer your trust from yourself to Jesus. You'll receive the Holy Spirit and become a new person this morning. That's the promise of the gospel. So that's the first thing that Paul reminds them of. He takes them back to their conversion and he says, listen, how did this Christian life thing get started? It started when you heard a message, it gripped your heart, you transferred your trust, you received the Spirit, you became a new person. All that happened before any of this mess with these false teachers came in. So you're a believer. Have the spell broken. Quit thinking you need something else. That's what he's trying to do. Secondly, not only do we become Christians by believing the gospel, but we grow as Christians by believing the gospel. We become Christians by believing the gospel, verse 1 and 2. We grow as Christians by believing the gospel, verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, in other words, having started your Christian life in this way, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In verses 1 and 2, Paul reminds the Christians in Galatia that the Spirit entered their lives through the vivid depiction of Christ's work and their abandoning of their self-trusting efforts to be accepted by God. Now, in verse 3, he says that the way the Spirit entered their life should be the very same way the Spirit advances in their life. He says... You began by the Spirit, you need to continue by the Spirit. In other words, having begun with this Spirit through trust transfer, the Spirit leading you to transfer your trust to Jesus, now that you've had that happen initially in your, the beginning of your Christian life, are you now going to think that you're going to grow through some other dynamic? Do you think that you're going to advance, make progress, be perfected, mature in the Christian life through something other than what you began it with? No. What Paul is saying is that the Christian life continues and finishes exactly the way it begins. The way into the Christian life is also the way on in the Christian life. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says, is not only for the start of the Christian life, it's for the whole of the Christian life. We are not to think of Christianity 
as step one, becoming a Christian by grace through faith. Step two, living as a Christian by works of the law. No. Step one, you become a Christian by grace through faith. Step two, you grow as a Christian by grace through faith. And some of you are not mature Christians for that reason. Because you're trying to operate and live the Christian life on some other dynamic than what you began it with. And I'm here to help you this morning. I want to help you and serve you. Instead, we're we're to think of living as Christians by grace through faith alone. Progress in the Christian life does not differ from the way we began the Christian life. In both instances, we trust God and don't rely on our flesh or on any native ability within ourselves to produce something for God. We, can, we go on trusting, walking, hoping by grace through faith. Bill Riken, again, from start to finish, the whole Christian life is by grace through faith. A new life in Christ commences with faith, continues by faith, and will be completed through faith. To put this another way, the gospel is for Christians just as much as it is for non-Christians. We never advance beyond the good news of the cross and the empty tomb. As Tim Keller is so fond of saying, it's not the A B the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. It's not one class within the, the Christian building. Like you you know, to get into the Christian building, you need to walk in the gospel class. Then you get to move on to other more advanced classes. No. The building is the gospel. And as you move throughout different rooms of your Christian life, the gospel's permeating those rooms. It better be. Otherwise, you're going to be learning abstract doctrine that's unconnected to the gospel, and it is not going to help you grow. As Jane Ox Chamberlain said, the spirit never takes his pupils beyond the cross, but ever more deeply into it. You'll never get beyond the cross. You'll never. People in heaven aren't beyond the cross. That's the center of heaven. So we're never going to get beyond it for all eternity. We will see more and more as we progress through this series in Galatians that our failure to be the Christians we ought to be is not a matter of your trying, merely. And so, therefore, you can't treat your failures as a Christian merely as, you know, trying harder. That's the solution. No. At the root of all of our disobedience, according to Paul here, are particular systems of works righteousness that we're trying to manufacture in our lives. It's a particular way of depending on the flesh rather than having begun by the Spirit, continuing by the Spirit. The way to progress as Christians is to continually repent and uproot these systems the same way we became Christians. We saw Jesus as superior and great and wonderful and valuable and necessary. And we turn to him. And that's the way you continue. Colossians 2, 6. Just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Just as you receive Jesus as Lord, Paul says, let your whole Christian life be characterized by it. Just as you began. Now, We must go back again and again to the gospel of Christ crucified so that our hearts are more deeply gripped by the reality of what he did and who we are in him. Um, 
perhaps you're a person, I don't know anybody in particular, but perhaps you think, you know, you know, this whole series on Galatians has kind of been getting on my nerves because we've been talking about the gospel over and over and over again. Just the hammer the gospel, 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 gospel. When are we going to get on to something else? Do you realize the mistake you've been making? Do you want to achieve perfection by the flesh or by the spirit? Because if you're, it's going to be by the spirit, it's got to be through the gospel. Spirit flows in gospel channels. He didn't flow in fleshly channels. So if you're saying, I want to I grow as a Christian, I don't need this gospel stuff. Excuse me? Am I talking to the church of Galatia? We have to test ourselves, make sure that we are biblical in our thinking about how to make progress in the Christian life. And I want to I walk us through. I'm going to give us some examples here because I think we need to make this concrete. What does it look like when Paul says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? What does it look like to try to be perfected or grow as a Christian by your own doing and your own efforts? How do you, I mean, we all have to exercise our will in this. We all have to do something. So what does it mean to do it by the Spirit and not by the flesh? Well, we're going to get into that more in Chapter 5 when Paul talks about it, but I'll go ahead and insert some examples here that I hope will help us put some flesh on what this means, no pun intended. Let's give the example of stealing. It's tax season, right? We may be tempted to lie about our income because we feel anxious about our finances. That's a temptation, so it's there. So there's two ways to handle that temptation, right? Observing the law, hearing with faith. Seeking to be perfected by in the flesh or having begun by the Spirit, seeking to continue by the Spirit. How do you, how do you continue by the Spirit when you're facing that temptation to feel anxious about your finances so you cheat on your income? Well, the reason... Yeah, you have to step back first, and you, you can't just answer, well, God says don't steal, I'm not going to steal. Merely. That, may, that works in the short run. That's a good, okay? But long term, that's not going to make you a generous, non-stealing person. You have to ask yourself, why am I anxious about my finances? The reason I feel this way is because I'm looking to money to be my functional Savior rather than Jesus Christ. I'm anxious because I want to feel secure. And I want to feel secure, so I've transferred my trust from Jesus to money. So now I'm saying, behold my Lord and Savior, money. You have to get there. And when you get there, you recognize, wait, I've just moved the object of my trust. I've just moved the object of my salvation from Jesus and his promises to meet all my needs and take care of me to money. So how do you be, seek to overcome that temptation by the spirit, not by the flesh? Well, the same way you became a Christian. You look to Jesus, you see him again, and all of his promises attached to him. I died for you, I love you, I'll take care of you, I'll supply all your needs, and you trust him as your Savior, even when you feel anxious about your finances. And I don't need to steal because I have Jesus Christ. The Spirit comes, enables you by grace to obey. That is one example of 
how to overcome stealing, the temptation to steal by grace through faith. The reason that people steal is because they've, underneath that stealing is because they're looking to something else to be their savior other than Jesus. That's the reason. The fruit is stealing. The root is you don't trust Jesus. That's the root of the sin. You've got to get down to the root of the sin. What about sexual sin? Sexual pleasure is intense, and God made it and put it in you, and he's pro-sex. God is pro-sex within the context that he said it's not destructive. He knows it's intense. Therefore, he tells you the context to put it in, and it's committed heterosexual marriage. So if we give in to sexual sin, it's because something else is functioning as our Savior at that moment rather than Jesus. Maybe it's the other person. I have to sleep with that person or they'll leave me. And Jesus said, never will I leave you or forsake you. But you're looking to him to never leave you or forsake you, and that's why you feel like you have to sleep with him. Or if you're a guy, maybe, my life will be unfulfilled if I don't bow down before master sex. And you don't trust Jesus' promises. He says, I'll fulfill you. Jesus was the most happy, fulfilled man in all of history and never had sex once. It's not necessary to your human completion. But Jesus says, trust me, I know the path to greatest joy and fulfillment. And when you receive him as Savior and you go back to that, and say, look, this is the way I began, trusting him for everything. Go back, trust him for everything. Don't try to work it out and fix it yourself based on your own power and your own abilities. Last example, think about anger. We could simply say, Lord, I have a problem with anger, sinful anger. I blow up all the time. Please remove it from me and give me the power to forgive. And that's it. That's all you say. Well, that would be trying to do it in the flesh, even though you prayed. Because you haven't transferred trust necessarily yet. You've prayed. You've asked God to forgive you. But what are you trusting in that caused you to give it, get angry in the first place? Well, using Paul's paradigm here, uncontrolled anger comes from the flesh. We know that. It's one of the works of the flesh and cannot be killed by the flesh. So the reason we're angry is because, again, fundamentally, we began with Jesus as Savior, but now something else has rocked our world knock the control out a little bit, and we feel like we got to get it back. So if somebody comes in and interrupts my schedule, I'm angry with them. Why? Because I want to be God. That's why. I don't want to trust Jesus as my Savior at that moment. I trust myself as my Savior at that moment and get out of my face. I'm angry. You interrupted me. So we have to get down below that and seek to figure out what is driving that anger. Instead of just hoping God will remove our anger or simply exercising our willpower to try harder next time, yeah, i got to really work on that. We should ask, if I'm being too angry and unforgiving, what is it that I think I need so much? What do I need so much? What is being withheld from me that I feel I must have if I'm going to be saved? Do you get it? We're going to flesh this out more. You say, this is kind of new to me. This is kind of like Maybe it's because we haven't thought as much about the dynamics of the gospel and the way it's supposed to function in our lives as we should. And if you're like that, you're like me too. And that's one of the reasons why a few of our care groups are are working our way through the gospel-centered life stuff right now. Because we're trying to figure out, okay, Paul says we're supposed to live the Christian life the way we began it. What does that mean and how do we do it? So that's what we're trying to walk through. So if you're struggling with that, I invite you to take part.
As Dick Kaufman says, Christians think that we are saved by the gospel, but that we grow by applying biblical principles to every area of life. But we are not just saved by the gospel. We grow by applying the gospel to every, day, every area of life. Every area of our lives is a gospel problem and requires a gospel solution. So we have to figure out what aspects of the gospel we're not believing, what, what substitute saviors we're trusting in, and dethrone them by the power of the gospel. And that will cause you to be transformed from the inside out because the Holy Spirit flows in gospel channels. That's all I'm going to say about point number two, although we could unpack that more. So number point number one was we believe, uh, we become Christians by believing the gospel. Number two, we advance in the Christian life or we grow as Christians by believing the gospel, verse three. And then verses four and five, finally, we experience God's power by believing the gospel. Look at verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain? Suffer there can also be translated experience. It's debated whether or not he's actually referring to physical sufferings or persecution or whether he's just referring to experiences in general that included persecution. That's what I'm inclined to think. So I think that I think it is more appropriate in the context to be thinking about um, experiences as a whole, which would include suffering and persecution. So did you experience all of this? All that you've presently experienced up to this point in your Christian life, have you experienced all this in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So he comes back again to his phrase. You know, did you begin the Christian life by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Hearing with faith, Paul. Do you grow as a Christian by works of the law or hearing with faith? Hearing with faith, Paul. Did you, or did God, did you experience the power of God and miracles and all this through your own works or through hearing with faith? Hearing with faith, Paul. And Paul's saying, then stop thinking you need to add something else to Jesus' perfect work for you in order to get God to accept you. Stop thinking that. We experience God's power by believing the gospel. In three, in verse 3, he assumes they are Christians, and he laments the fact that they are being so foolish trying to make progress in the Christian life according to their own human effort. Now, in three four, he contemplates the prospect of their receiving circumcision and concludes that if they do so, they would have experienced all of God's work for them for no purpose. All that God had done up to that point in their lives, he's trying to remind them of the past and their experience. All that God had done to them up to that point would have been useless, would have been useless. The Spirit works only and as Christians are not relying on their works and attainment because the Spirit is primarily interested in glorifying Jesus. And that is why he chooses to work where human achievement is not esteemed. He loves to bless and come where the gospel and Jesus are central. So do we want the Holy Spirit in our church? Then we better make much of Jesus because he fought, he rides his coattails. Jesus, or the Holy Spirit rides the coattails of the proclamation of Jesus. In our Christian lives, 
in the beginning of Christian life, it's all about Christ. And to the degree that we're making much of Christ, talking about Christ, relating problems in relationship to Christ, the Spirit can be expected to be there. The Spirit works only because Christians are not relying on their works or attainment and are consciously and continuously resting in Christ alone for their acceptance with God and completeness before Him. The Spirit works only as we believe the gospel. Now let me ask you this question, dear brothers and sisters. Is there something that you want God to do in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of our church, in the life of our community, in the life of our nation, in the life of our world? Certainly there is. Plenty of things. Well, what do you think God requires of you? On what basis do you believe that you will experience God's power in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of your church, in the life of our nation, or in the life of the world? Do you think it's going to be because you do a lot of stuff for God? Or that you are scrupulous in your obedience to God, which we should be concerned about obedience to God. But is that the basis on which you are seeking to receive God's power and experience God's power? Is that the question? If I work myself up enough, if I commit myself enough, if I do enough of this, God's Spirit will come. No. God's Spirit has never come that way. God's Spirit has always come by simple faith in the gospel. Because simple faith in the gospel exalts Jesus, and the Spirit comes to aid in that further exaltation of Jesus. So be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged. God works on behalf of those who trust the gospel. Parents, you want God to work in the lives of your children. Are you seeking to parent by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Your parent, when they look at you, do they say, my daddy loves the gospel, or my daddy makes me obey? All the, is that the primary tone? Is it works of the law? We've got to do this. Other people at church are watching. You will behave this way, son. I'm a pastor. I'm out of the ministry if I start doing stuff like that. My son will grow up in a gospel home where the gospel is treasured, where Jesus is treasured, and my works are not even in the picture. I want him to love Jesus. Then I've got to keep Jesus in front of him, and I've got to love him. That's the point. And it could, that, could, that could work out in a lot of different ways and a lot of different, you know, we will, we will do this, we will overcome this nation by political revolution, by working for moral laws. Yes, that's good. But that's works of the law. That's not hearing with faith. The object of your trust is transferred from Jesus to a political leader. We get that guy elected, it'll be good. Yes, it may be. Ultimately, no. Because he's a fallen, sinful human being. Whatever the case may be, we have to look and say, on what basis do we want to experience God's power as a people? Is it going to be by what we do for God or what God has done for us? And trusting that, relying on that, working that out, hoping in that, communicating that to the world, that if this world falls down, goes to pot, we are happy because we've got him. 
That's what has to be communicated. So, And that's where the Spirit will be. The Spirit is already in those people. And don't we see this over and over and over in the life of Jesus? I mean, over. I'll just share a few examples in closing. We see over and over in the, in the life and ministry of our Savior how he, eager he is to bless those who believe him. Just simple, believe him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years sneaked up behind Jesus, grabbed his cloak. He feels power comes out of him. He turns. She's afraid, and he says, take heart, your face made you well. He sees this little Canaanite woman who comes to him, asks Jesus to heal her demonized daughter, and he says to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. The paralytic who was lowered through the roof in Capernaum was healed. The scripture says when Jesus saw their faith, he healed the paralytic. Just over and over again, just the spirit and Jesus just eager to exalt simple faith. Not people who feel like, oh, man, we got to do so. But people who just be still and know that he is God, trust him, walk with him, seek to obey him, seek to model a life of, of grace and reliance upon Jesus. And, yes, that means they're active citizens. They love the city. They care about things. They care about problems. They're not just, you know, sitting in the pew with the Bible open just, you know, you know, waiting for hell to come to earth so they can go to heaven. You know, they're, work, they're, they're the saltiest, loving people of the world. And it's because they just, they don't, they really just care a lot about Jesus. That's the issue. They really care a lot about the gospel, and they care a lot about their Savior. And then in Acts 14, Luke's, Luke writes, In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth, and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. We just over and over in Scripture, we just see Holy Spirit works miracles where simple faith is. Simple faith. God's power is shown in simple faith. And I just want to encourage you this morning that God's power is available to those who simply believe. And I'm just talking about the presence and work of the Spirit in our lives. And he's, he's available, and he's eager to, to bless in the context of just believing the gospel. So in the gospel, brothers and sisters, we have absolutely everything we need, everything we need. We have everything we needed to get the Christian life going in the first place. We were complete the minute we started. You were complete the minute you started. Everything you need was supplied to you, the presence of the Spirit, the gospel, all you needed. The holiest Christians in the world can be holy if they've got the Spirit and the gospel. They may not have a lick of scripture, but they've got the true gospel and the Spirit and someone teaching to them in the Bible from the Bible who does know. But they, they don't have a copy of the Bible. They couldn't afford one. But they're godly, hoping in Christ, affecting um, change in the lives of other people simply because they have the gospel and they have the spirit. So we have everything we need to begin the Christian life. We have everything we need to grow in the Christian life. And we have everything that we need to experience God's ongoing power through his Holy Spirit throughout our Christian lives. So let's renounce all confidence in ourselves again this morning. Let's just do it again. We come here with remnants of that still in us. Let's just say, God, it's not us. It is not us. It's all of you. It's all of Christ. We want to live on him, live from him, live to him, live with him. 
and that and that alone will break the spell. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder from Galatians 3, 1 to 5, that we are complete. We have everything we need in the gospel. We don't need um, other people coming in telling us Jesus plus this. We have everything we need for our complete justification. We have everything we need for our ongoing sanctification. We have everything we need for our ultimate glorification in the gospel and in the presence of your spirit. We pray, we renounce again all reliance and trust in our own works. We just give it up. We lay, in the the language of the hymn, we lay our deadly doing down. And we trust completely and wholly in the doings of another, namely your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.